but that's wonderful. You should all come. Katie Kurt is very, very good. I unfortunately won't be able to make it, but I'll um, get the IV, but otherwise, you should definitely go. There you go. And that, I believe, will wrap up everyone. The Attorney General will be speaking in Queen's on Saturday, the 9th of February, uh, 1 p.m. at the Old Staff Common, and the Minister of European Affairs, Heather McEntee, will be speaking as well. That's at 1 o'clock. Um, they'll be having a panel discussion as well on like, Brexit and other things. So if anyone's interested and wants to know more details, send me a message. Thanks. There we go. There's always stuff going on at Queen's if you choose to engage with it. That'll wrap up the announcements and I'll now hand over to our primark of passwords spoken to read the minutes of last week's debate which was Ooh substance you This house oh, terribly. I get worse than you. Last week's meeting which was this house believes some sins should not be forgiven. Right, this isn't all. Um, I actually don't know why that isn't all, because I turned it all and it made the noise, so... Is it? Yes, it's on now. Excellent. Tip to off the light since this afternoon. Okay, so um, I think I'll call last week. Uh, I decided to give you the most relaxing set of minutes we've ever had, and I think the response to that was, it was heartwarming, if I'm honest. It was, it was really lovely. So I was thinking, I could do that again. I could do, you know, I think everyone's off for that. Uh, another relaxing set of minutes. But then I thought about the motion. <laughs> and I thought, this house believes some sins should not be forgiven. And I thought, why don't I do something unforgivable? <laughs> and something I've threatened to do for a number of weeks. And I used the word threatened in, like, in the most literal term. So, um, this week is the fateful week I have decided to theme the minutes around um, Latin American pop sensation, Pitbull. Pitbull as you have never heard it before. eventually, right? It's happened. President Hugh Dobbin opened the meeting with some announcements before Secretary Matthew Bradley HLM treated the House to what he claimed would be the most relaxing set of minutes ever. Seemingly, if people are going to fall asleep during the moments, he may as well make it look intentional. Then it was time for private members' business. Uh, Mr. Conway Arnold noted the talk uh, of the age at which you can legally change your gender being lowered to 16 in the Republic of Ireland, and that's the House's opinion on the topic. Mr. Robert Clark stated that this made sense as it brought it in line with the age of consent, and that's the time when you gain full control of your body. Mr. Tom McGuinness brought up H. Bomber Guy's 16 hour live stream of Donkey Kong 64, which raised $340,000 for children's charity mermaids in order to spite Grey Lenar. Mr. Morgan Hickman informed the House that he found Mr. Bradley's relaxing minutes, and this is, this is heartbreaking, that they were nice last week, and they. I'm sorry. I refused 
not good at music, I'm impression of Matt Berry, and the refreshing smell of Febreze to be rather pre pleasant. An expression that I can't speak. Is this a breakdown? Who knows? Valencia, come on more regularly. This statement warmed Mr. Bradley's heart, and he frequently listens back to it as he cries himself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Lee's thoughts on the recent allegations against Alex Salmon. Mr. Morgan made them warm warned that the issue should not be discussed until the details were clear. In President's questions, Ms. Chloe Ferguson asked the President to tell the House a secret, and the President revealed that the picture at the back of the Senate room was not in fact the Queen, but her body double, who I can reveal exclusively is Mr. Russell Mayor. The notorious flatmate of the president, Mr. Shea Glasgow, asked Hugh to pick his favourite out of the classic film Scooby-Doo and its sequel, Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. Mr. Dobbin cited the films as a perfect encapsulation of everything wrong with the early 2000s, but exhibited reference for the second film, admiring its scope. Furthermore, Mr. Luke Braithwaite asked the president his favourite Scooby-Doo character, to which the president responded with Shaggy. Seemingly, Hugh's sort of confidence in the lanky, green-shirted male unlocks Shaggy's full power as the demigod we know he is. A joke which will age really horribly. And clearly has no age at all. It was never born. Um, Mr. Russell Mayer asks Hugh how he is. As Hugh noted, they always ask who's the president, they never ask how's the president. <laughs> Having sat through so now, having sat through a two-hour-long evidence lecture, Hugh seemingly took solace in his education, claiming something has to get me those chickens I buy. Mr. Oldman's Baron asked the president who he believes will sit on the Iron Throne in popular television series Game of Thrones. Mr. Dalton claimed that the throne will be destroyed, and balaclava in hand, addressed the portrait of the Queen, threatening monarchies are bad. You hear me, Lizzie? And I'd love to say I'm making that up. The third man, Rachel Lamb, asked if we could do secretary's questions for the following week. Mr. Dolan declined the suggestion, and rightly so. Mr. Barnes asked for Hugh's review of the latest Dragon Ball movie, which he saw in the audio in Victoria Square. The president noted that it was an anime film, so given the demographic, the theatre absolutely stank. And while there was a huge crowd, it had to be that huge crowd. Finally, Mr. Russell then asked Hugh his favourite sin and how he would like to commit it. That sin was lust. The target of his sin, Jake Keogh. <laughs> All the President's questions were heard from Mr. Conor McArdle, Mr. Chris Hubble, and Mr. Bobby Clark. The vote of prior opinion was taken on the night's motion. This House believes some sin should not be forgiven, which read 18 eyes, 15 nays, and 14 abstentions. I'm not one to believe in curses, ladies and gentlemen. I don't believe it is po possible to curse an individual. But considering what happened with the speaker, how badly my notes have gone so far, and just my general luck this week, I do not believe my luck that it actually hasn't printed properly on this page, and I can't read some of the minutes. So I may have to make them up as I go along. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely can't read some of this. Here we go. Mr. Daniel Lowe opened for the proposition, defining sin as a transgression of a higher law and a rebellion against God. Suggesting that forgiveness is conditional on repentance, Mr. Lowe argued that if all sins are forgiven, if forgiveness becomes a meaningless concept, <laughs> sins should not be forgiven if there is no attempt at repentance. This is my idea of hell. Regarding the motion as the theological equivalent of am I screwed, Mr. Mark Gilmore spoke first for the opposition, stating, 
It doesn't matter if you send a tiny bit or if you're Hitler. Mr. Gilmore questioned the proposition's assessment of God as the injured party and elaborated uh, to say that not all sins can be forgiven is to say that the devil has won and that God will never cast us aside. Speaking second from the proposition, Mr. Corey Ferguson noted the distinctly Christocentric view that has been presented so far and examined the forgiveness of sin in other religions. Drawing a comparison with the unforgivable curses in Harry Potter, Ms. Ferguson noted how acceptance and forgiveness are two separate concepts, and that acceptance of sin does not necessarily constitute forgiveness of the action. Second for the opposition, Mr. Shade Glasgow began with confession prayer, as he's about to accuse the proposition of squirreling the motion. Expressing a prior worry of what the opposition, what the proposition may do, Mr. Glasgow stated that, lo, it actually did happen, and claimed that it was undesirable to say that some sins should not be forgiven, as our souls are eternal, and for a sin to not be forgiven would be to confine an, indi confine an individual to eternal damnation. Mr. Shea Glasgow implored the House to vote for the opposition, if you know what's best for you. Closing the proposition was Mr. Matthew Bryson, who noted that sins are transgressions against God. We have no right to decide to forgive them. Questioning whether we should forgive the crimes of Mr. Morgan Hickman, because of course he did, Mr. Bryson noted that while sins may be easily explained, that does not necessarily excuse them, and stated that the opposition refused to see the irre irreversibility of the world we live in. Mr. Chris Hubble concluded for the opposition, claiming that we're all sinners, capable of committing sins little and large. And we also found out something about stealing Lindor, which was quite interesting. Mr. Hubble questioned what Christianity provides if not forgiveness, noted the inherently forgiving nature of God. Mr. Hubble concluded by stating that if we do not approach God, we cannot be forgiven. And it is this approach, uh, this approach of God that allows all sins to be forgiven. Questions were heard from Ms. Jean Sweeney, Mr. Colin McArdle, Mr. Jonathan William Duranger. Two fines were issued to Mr. Hugh Dolan, and a singular fine was issued to Mr. Tom McGillis. One naughty, naughty voice. A binding vote on speaker ability was taken on the motion which read 20 eyes, 8 nays, and 6 abstentions. Resulting in a conclusive win for the proposition. May I take these notes as read? No, I think. Uh, very, very minor correction, just to put the beginning of your first year, your consent in the Republic is 16, it's actually 17. Is it 17? Yeah. Um, I was just going off what was said by the speaker. Okay. Um, so I will make a note of that. That is the first time that it's happened, but this was read, which I'm still very proud of. So these minutes were cursed. I'm off to sit down everything I like. as I always do, which is, um, can I ask the House please to extend a round of applause to our competitors at the Trinity Women's Open today, who sent down three teams and two judges, so if we just give them a big old Um, competition will have wrapped up by now, so I assume they're presently on their way back to good oil, Belfast. So, um, now we move on to the most increasingly barren, uh, Time of the meetings as the these islands continue to continually revolve around three or four issues at any given time that everyone's sick of. It's the private members' business where anyone can bring up anything they want in the world that they wish to talk about. So if anyone has anything that raise it, <laughs> go to Mr. Donoghue. Uh, I'd just like to ask the House their opinions on the ongoing situation in Venezuela and the continuing question of whether or not the US should get involved with another country. We don't have any points to give on that. Uh, Mr. McFarren. No, they shouldn't. 
to be 100% honest, I mean, they've interfered in South America, Southeast Asia, Middle East, Africa, quite a lot of places already, so you know, give it a rest already, lads. And the truth of the matter is, is that this is like if a Labour backbench MP who didn't really like Theresa May in the direction she was going in Brexit, she was in an economic disaster, decided to declare herself as Prime Minister, and then try and get support from the rest of like, the United Nations. So, no, I don't think they should in any way get involved in the situation which they already need to watch to begin with. Here. Another view in the room. Please, happy. Mr. Hickman, a very eager looking. I'm struggling to stand up up here. That's a There we go. One thing worth noting, and I think, it, I think it's something that has kind of uh, it's gone unsaid in the first question and unaddressed by the response, is that there are manifest and multiple uh, human rights abuses in Venezuela. There is an absolutely atrocious record of bloodshed in a bloody civil war where individuals are protesting against a violent and oppressive dictatorship. I, my question would be, in fact, how can a country, a neighboring country, nearly, stand by and allow these human rights abuses to happen without taking some action? And not condoning any particular action, but doing something, arguably, is necessary. Can I respond? Um, nah. <laughs> I'll go to Mr. Murphy. I think there are plenty of things that you can do to restore peace in order to get. The first thing you need to do is lift the international sanctions that have been placed on the Venezuelan government by the US and its cronies. I think that's the first step that you take towards actually having some, some, some form of actual economy in Venezuela again. The, the US are perfectly aware that the Venezuelan economy is heavily reliant on oil. That is why OPEC has been uh, lobbying to make sure that oil stays as cheap as possible, absolutely gutting and bombing out the Venezuelan economy. And I recognise that there's plenty of economic mismanagement on behalf of the Maduro government and the fact that they haven't attempted to diversify their economy in, in, in any way, shape, or form, really. Uh, but I think we need to recognise that they are, to a large extent, as an oil based country, reliant on uh, international trade in oil. And, and as far as the US allied with Saudi Arabia, who, just like to point out, are not, not exactly claiming on the human rights front either, uh, are largely responsible for what's going on in Venezuela. I think they should stay out and they should lift the international sanctions that allow Venezuela to try and get back to the democratic country. That, at its heart, it is. It has the best election, one of the best election systems in the world. It has one that most of the, the European Union would be very proud to have. It has, Maduro has a higher approval rating than most of the people who are criticizing him about. And I think they should be allowed to return to the democratic country that they once were, unmolested by the United States. Yes, Mr. Dawson, sorry. Um, well, while I'm no fan of President Maduro, I think he is trying to institute a form of authoritarian rule in this country. He is violating human rights. And the, there have been major discrepancies in the electoral process in Venezuela. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry, you're going to have to offer some proof for that because there's not a shred of evidence. Whoa. Like, I'm sorry, like, something that's fundamentally undemocratic is allowing the, the opposition to run a perfectly normal uh, election campaign, canvassing the entirety of uh, Venezuela, running out of elections out of normal, putting posters up, 
The only reason that they didn't run in the last election is because they knew for a fact that they would lose by a landslide, which they did. Um, I don't, I don't accept those points. I think if you look at the uh, international bodies that were invited, or sometimes uninvited, to look at the elect, the most recent elections in Venezuela, they, they have all said that there was very common um, intimidation, rigging, that sort of thing. But like I was saying, I'm while I'm no fan of President Maduro, I think. The United States is primarily motivated by control of resources in what they uh, see as their sphere of influence. They expect Venezuela to follow the lead of the United States. And um, any talk, the, um, the president's chief security advisor, John Bolton, I think left on a sheet of paper to be read by everyone that he was thinking about sending 5,000 troops to Venezuela. This should be totally out of question. I don't think Venezuela is any worse than multitudes of countries that the United States supports. I think I saw a figure that 73% of dictatorships in the world receive United States support. So any pretense that this is a moral foreign policy position by the United States is utter nonsense. When it comes to the actual talk of democracy in Venezuela, uh, I think you might slightly mistake it. Unfortunately, for example, uh, the government tried to create a second house that would be controlled by their cronies because they knew they couldn't get legislation passed by the currently elected one. Uh, but unfortunately, I'm not exactly the biggest fan of America, so I'm coming down more on your side. <laughs> We've seen from the Monroe Doctrine onwards, America sees to make South America an extension of manifest destiny, believing that they have a right to control their actions, control their resources, control their people. This could just be another attempt to do that. If it's 5,000 troops or doing what they've done in countless countries of just replacing the dictatorship with one they like more, we can't allow them to do this. We cannot stand for it. And uh, any separate pieces of private members business on the road go to Mr. Nair. Uh, thankfully, a more lighthearted piece of crime. <laughs> but um, I had an interesting experience uh, yesterday, in fact, and to some extent, not today, in that I bought into the sort of marketing hype. I bought into what Twitter and the various sort of hype rage machine was telling me to do, and I tried a vegan sausage roll from Greg's. Um, and only to find, I was very, very impressed to find that the vegan sausage roll from Greg's is actually, in my opinion, as good as, if not slightly better than the regular sausage roll. And that is a very hot take, because I, I'm not a vegan and would never consider becoming one, but it was actually very, very nice. Um, their synthetic sausage paste is surprisingly convincing. Um, so, and also not as greasy at all. Uh, the only problem with it that I found in my extensive review was that it smelled like nothing. Um, which was slightly disconcerting. Um, and so the main thing I want to go to the house about regarding is uh, their particular thoughts on um, vegan synthetic substitutes for foods, if they have any recommendations for things they think are nice in that field, and the entire sort of uh, area surrounding it as a whole. Uh, just spot the vegetarians in the room. Uh, <clears throat> any responses to Mr. Nairn's point? Oh, look, it's Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not standing up again. Yeah, that's, that's okay, we can all see you. 
Um, so those we can. Um, or lucky. Up to you. Um, actually, Marks and Spencer do a very nice um, kind of vegan vegetarian burger with uh, beetroot colouring in it. It's very, very pleasant. Um, I tried it recently because I saw I was remarkably impressed by uh, the fact that it actually looked like it was the right colour for us rather than being the colour of a cooked burger. So, uh, if anyone wants to try that and corroborate my experience, feel free. I don't make any money from it. But, please sponsor me, Mark and Spencer's. Quite point of order. Did you say point of order? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> bloody those. Right, I can't deny them, unfortunately. So. That was just a clear propaganda piece from Mark and Spencer, which you just did. That. <laughs> so, well, you can just address that as an additional point, I didn't. That's the problem. <laughs> I can't tell what is or isn't a point of order until it's already said. It turns out not to be a point of order in the content at all. It's already too late. It's um it's a broken system. We need something to hold in here. Uh, anyone else have any thoughts on the vegan one? <laughs> <laughs> it seems like Darwin, so I'll move on to your uh, substantive right. point. So the day is getting tested on the start, so I'm gonna do it with the Last week uh, in Northern Ireland, 14 year old rape victim had travelled to the UK for abortion. Now, I'm wondering what the House thoughts are on this, and does this demonstrate a clear reason as to why we must at least look towards doing our laws of abortion here in this six county state? Yeah. Go to Mr. Nairn. I mean, this is also the abortion debate. People who are in favour of abortion are going to say that we need to update the laws. People who are against abortion are going to say that we shouldn't. Um, for my two cents, of course, I think we should. Um, I think it's interesting in the South, um, it's going to become more viable in that option, but I don't think it gives an excuse as for why we shouldn't have as a basic practice here. But I think that we're just going to end up going back and forth on this in the same camp as we always do, whenever it's one of the three issues that affect us currently. Mm -hmm. All in high court right now, I can um, I'll go to uh, Mr. Bunting. Um, so yeah, I concur with what's just been said by Mr. Mern. Um The only difference I would make is sometimes it's very difficult because it takes a case like this to kind of make, like focus our attention on something like this. And um, we should be thinking about it already. The only thing I would kind of correct in what's just been said is no one really is pro-abortion. But they are for choice, and we should be affording women the choice over their own bodies. Um, our abortion laws are draconian, they're inhumane, um, and they date from before the invention of the light bulb, and it's time to go again. I think this, well, I agree with the points made, um, and I think this raises a wider point of the cowardice of the British government to legislate change that is desired by the Northern Ireland public but can't be delivered by storm even if it was in existence because of the um, uh, the petition of concern um, and the British government seems satisfied to let Northern Ireland just be run by civil servants and I think that's a disgrace. Mr. Maury Hickman, back here. Actually, I'm not going to make any substantive points, but if anyone is particularly interested in this, we did a debate last year on called Would This House Would Repeal the Eighth? 
So if anyone is particularly interested in this debate and would like to hear more from both sides, have a look on the podcasts. <laughs> I was going to plug that as well. You and I were of similar mind. Uh, it's pretty raucous with people with signs and everything. Uh, well, they didn't. They, to be fair, they had the signs before it was outside. We just must through what we had them for. I don't like to sell them to Shame, sometimes. <laughs> no better setting than here tonight, I'll throw you out. Uh, Mr. Patton. Uh, is it most likely this law, though it is recovery and terrible, is it a terms abortion and woman's right to choose would be a class issue? Simple fact is that not everyone can afford to go to England to seek the health care they need. It means that only the wealthy and the middle class are able to take control of their own bodies, whereas those the working class are left to uh, their own devices in the most desperate of circumstances. This law creates a divide between the classes in Northern Ireland. Uh, that's no surprise because that's probably the worst one. Uh, I think I'll ask Paul for any. One that I've just gone is actually really interesting after checking my emails. Let's check. Um, yeah, sure. Um, so I just like to inform everyone because this is mildly entertaining. Uh, I had a, I had a little project where occasionally I look up domains that are defunct to see if I can acquire them. Uh, my most my most recent attempt at an acquisition was a site called genitals.com. Uh, uh, this was for the very simple reason that were it for sale for less than a hundred pounds, I would have my email for the next two years be Russell Nair at genitals.com. <laughs> Purely for my own amusement. Uh, unfortunately, I'm after getting an email back from the gentleman I am um, contacted regarding this. And uh, it appears to be seventy-five thousand uh, dollars. So uh, my GoFundMe will be going up tomorrow. If anyone would like to contribute to giving me genitals.com as an email address, thank you very much. Wouldn't be a worse story from the campaign I've ever seen. Does anyone have a hack? Does anyone have a If anyone has any uh, thoughts on that, they <laughs> offer. Oh, well, in, in, Mr. Browning. Um, if they go to genitals.com, you try genitals.com, please. Genitals.com. comes to an end as the president's questions begin. This is the part of the show where anyone has something they want to ask me for any reason. And again, your questions don't all have to be ones that probe deeply into my personal life. You may ask them now. Uh, I don't know to Mr. Hickman. If you could be a razor blade company, which razor blade company would you be? I am definitely not the best a man can be, as anyone observing. Oh, oh, oh. As I said, I would um, probably go for Beck. <laughs> and that's what I use. As you can see by the horrific neck here, I'm sporting the singular Beck disposable razor that I've been using for the past three weeks. Doesn't really do the job that well, so there we go. 
Uh, Miss Boyd. Yes, for any of you who weren't aware, which I assume is almost all of you, unless you really care about what I do in my free time. Uh, myself, Mr. Hubble, and Miss Boyle were having a grand out time in uh, the bar slash club Cuckoo on Tuesday night, where we, their karaoke night, uh, grand fun enough, where we did our own rendition of, obviously, because that's just the year we come from, did a rendition of Smash Mouth All Stars, because of course we did. So, there you go, that's your public service announcement, that's what I do in my free time. Uh, Mr. Nair. Mr. President, um, er early, uh, myself and Mr. Bradley were in the English social space, and we were having a discussion, we were inquiring as to, as to various economic factors. Um, one of these uh, ended up revolving around the chocolate bars. <laughs> and we discovered that in their proper, I'm getting on that, uh, Paul Chuck, very recently, uh, Tuesday night in fact, uh, we went to cook you over and um, visited him, uh, DJed at uh, Filthy McNasty's. He has a gig in which he's a patient DJ. Yes. And we discovered that well, at the height of their performance, um, the Chocolate Brothers could be hired out for $3,500 for uh, an evening. I imagine that is now halved. <laughs> and I'm wondering if, using the Literific's considerable wealth, you could hire Paul Chuckle to guest chair a debate. Would you do it? And which debate would you have him guest chair? Hmm. You know, Barry's dead, so I hope you'll be good when you're chuckling this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> would I spend um, 3,000 quid getting? Well, it would be half of it. Yes. <laughs> was it 3,500 or was it 35,000? No, it was 3,500 because it was um, 6,200 to hire some other bloke. Okay. Um, and he looked like a rapper or something. And then Paul and Barry chuckled the need from the regime. If there's anything that proves how much our society feels like nostalgia, it's Paul chuckled in DJ. Um, it was very good. We watched a video of it. It was very good. Trying to think now, because now you've got me ranting through the target card that, as you've seen from the announcements, I can barely remember what happened last week. Uh, zooming forward, what do we have that old Paul Chocolate could have a decent laugh at? I'm sure he'd love to do a debate on the EU super state. I'm sure that's just right up his alley. Don't throw it to me, I can remember my old turn card. Uh, we could, uh, let's get him in for the uh, This House Regrets Internet Pornography. Why do we have Paul Chocolate in for that? And he'd show up expecting to do the DJ gig, and then he sees everyone here in their shirts and sweater vests, and he's like, what's this, lad? <laughs> yes, that's my answer to that. Uh, any separate question, now? Uh, Monsignor Hubble. Build it on that. Can we make that happen, please? Can you uh, extend them a group, uh, an invitation to Paul Chocolate? Don't pay him for Can we have a motion of this house would extend an open invitation to Paul Chapel to visit the Literary? I second that. Aye, because you should all vote for it because you just think you're bloody hilarious. Let's have a good. 
Yeah, might as well. Uh, right, fine. Motion is this house to extend. Nothing in patient Paul talks about that. that, 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 that. Uh, if you would vote in favour, raise your hands and say aye. 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 I know he's a member, so I can scope him out. <laughs> What, what is that? Is that 22? 28. 28. Uh, we'll go with yours. You're always right. And if you would, uh, if you would vote opposing that, raise your hand and say nay. Nay. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked the Chuckle Brothers. It's, um, it's slapstick, probably, and not more fun. I don't, I don't laugh at other people's misery. <laughs> <laughs> I call order, people. This is a serious issue. As you can tell because I'm so enthused in the result of this hope we're having. Uh, we'll go finally to abstaining votes, and if you don't care at all, raise your hand and go dead. Right. Is our version Danny Healy Ray? Matthew Bradley, uh, read back to me the vote on the thing that I will absolutely forget to do. Okay. This house will extend an open invitation to Paul Chuckle. There were 28 eyes, two nays, and one abstention. Uh, there you have it, the eyes have it, the eyes have it. I hope you all see the crowd of yourself. You're changing the words one, one retirement. <laughs> um, oh, we're, we're finishing up really early, so I'll see if there are any more President's questions. Really, like to try and drag this out. Mr. Kieran. Mr. President, we live in a mad world these days. We do. <laughs> we live in a world where resignation, free shuttles, and all sorts of nonsense is happening at every level of government. How would you respond to the news that the Batman has resigned? <laughs> I am not kidding. How would every guy? Um, that's an interesting question. I'm trying to think of a response though, like get on that, but it's something like so. Give me a minute. Uh, if the Batman resigned, he has. He has. Ben Affleck has. Oh, Ben Affleck. That's right. Flip. I was. I was wondering you were talking. I thought you were talking as in like the fictional Batman has given up his crusade, which obviously, given his psychosis, he never would because he wants to die. Basically. Um, Yes, this is our weekly uh, pop culture presence question where we see how I think about the latest news in media. And I don't care if it's going to be Batman anymore. Um, anyone in the room can fight me if they want. I don't think he was very good at it. And all of the films he played, Batman, were terrible. So, um, good riddance to both Ben and As Batman and <laughs> So, yes, good riddance to Ben Affleck's Batman and the DC Extended Universe as a whole, because it was all me shambolic. There we go. Does that satisfy your question, Mr. Kenneth Fantastic. We're uh, still like very good for time, so I'll ask for any more, but again, I know this is dragging on every week, so I'm more than happy to wrap it up. <laughs> Looks like it's wrapping up time. So, we're about to move on to the stuff that you actually come to these for. That's a joke. We all love the night. Obviously. Um, so, the motion for this week is This House believes that famine was a genocide. We now move, as we always do, to the prior opinion vote. This is what we think the motion before we, come, before we come in this evening and before we hear the words of all of our speakers. 
So, uh, and everyone can vote on this. I mentioned about there was only earlier. This one is open to all. So, if you would vote in favour of the motion, this house believes the famine was a genocide, please raise your hands and say aye. Uh, <laughs> okay. And if you would vote against, please raise your hand and say no. Okay. And if you would wish to vote abstaining, please raise your hands and go bleh. Right. So, I now hand you back over to our Emperor of Annunciations, Matthew Bradley. Will you read us back that book, please? I honestly don't think I'm deserving that title. I'm not going to give it all. Anyway, there were 24 eyes, 12 nays, and 7 abstentions. Great, so the eyes have it, then the eyes have it. There's a little energy tonight, but maybe it's because I have no energy. I'm not too sure. Uh, so, we're now ready to move on to the substantive business of the evening. And so I please welcome up our first speaker for the proposition. Please welcome up Mr. Alton Rickstar. You deserve the title which you just gave you, or not. You deserve that Members of the opposition, fellow members of the proposition, Mr. Secretary, Mr. President, members of the House. We have the proposition are the strong conviction that the Irish famine was a genocide committed upon the Irish people. And this was not a natural famine, but an artificially manufactured hunger across the island of Ireland. Now before I address the main crux of my argument, I'm going to quote some statistics, which I'm sure many in this room will be more than familiar with. However, I feel the need to be said again. So that need to be said again so people truly understand the magnitude of suffering and death which occurred during the famine. There was enough food though to feed the Irish people. They didn't die because of the potato blight, but due to a lack of care and understanding to their situation from their landlords and the negligence of the British government under the command of Lord John Russell. The result of this lack of care is over 1 million Irish men, women and children died from starvation and famine-related diseases and over 1 million more were forced to emigrate from their homes to have a chance of survival and many, we must remember, didn't make it. The opposition made claim to us that this was a tragedy but it was no genocide. And I could believe this if the crisis had only affected a few thousand people and there had simply been some mismanagement which had resulted in these deaths. But whenever I read a statistic like one million people, then I cannot in good conscience say that that is the case. No. This was a genocide of gross negligence that resulted in deaths which otherwise would not have happened. How does one million of your... Yeah. 
negligence and malevolence are not the same thing. I will be addressing this issue later in my speech. However, <laughs> I will be addressing this issue later. <laughs> right? Malevolence, whenever the night. negligence clearly does harm on to someone, and you should know that as well as anyone, Finbar. How can one million of your supposed own people die and you refuse to take responsibility? I ask if the same situation had arisen in Somerset or Wiltshire, do you believe the British government would have allowed an excess of one million people to die? I seriously doubt they would. No. Regarding the famine and its status as a genocide, the opposition will predictably, predictably mention in their speeches how through the lens of clever lawyers, the Irish famine cannot be classified as a genocide. Oh, they will sure. try and argue <laughs> that there is no intent to destroy. However, what they are failing to acknowledge is just how difficult it is for a travesty of human rights in it, such as the famine to be classified internationally recognised as a genocide. So I think hiding behind some legal jargon to say the famine wasn't a genocide is pandering to similar arguments made by historians who try and claim the Ukrainian famine of 1932-33 caused by Stalin wasn't a genocide. Who is it on that one? No. no. The situation is virtually identical to the Irish. Yes? Uh, could you clarify your definition of a genocide, please? I will be again addressing this issue there in my speech. <laughs> However, um, I would classify it as a genocide as whenever there is intent to destroy, either initially setting out or whenever you have clear suffering occurring for you and you do nothing to otherwise assist in helping people that are your own people. However, going back to the situation in Ukraine, which is virtually identical to the Irish, the Ukrainians have taken from them the sorry, the green Ukrainians groups taken from them by the Soviet government and they were left to starve. In Ireland the potato crop was right ridden was blood right ridden and all other foods have to be given to rich landlords as payments, leaving the Irish to starve to death. Now I would be amazed if I found anyone in this audience who would defend the actions of Stalin in Ukraine and would argue that this wasn't a genocide. <laughs> However, what happened with the Irish is a virtually identical situation. Lord John Russell and his cronies, Joseph Travelin and Lord Lansdowne, are as bad as Joseph Stalin. His Soviet cronies, one group just has better PR. <laughs> so if you morally condemn the Ukrainian famine as the genocide it was, then you too must morally condemn the famine which occurred in Ireland, as they are virtually identical scenarios. Oh, no. We see it. Uh, we see this. We see it this time in the West. The phrase now coined laissez-faire economics was the bomb. The idea that if you just leave something alone, then it will sort itself out. This, however, is complete rubbish. In regards to the famine, some may call the actions of the British government not banning the export of food, which was common practice in famine-struck countries at the time, not bringing in any meaningful supplies, and believing it was best for the economy to sort of out itself out as laissez-faire. We have the proposition called couldn't care less. They were well aware of the situation in Ireland, but viewed the Irish as someone who was not worthy of their help. They let them die. This can be seen repeatedly throughout the history of the British Empire. If we look at Bengal no, in India, was the British government Bengal, we see an unprecedented seven famines. Before the British arrived in India, Bengal had not one famine. 
resulting over these seven bonds in 60 million deaths, casualties rivaling rival those of the entire Second World War. Morally, the, we must ask ourselves, morally, what happened in Bengal, and due to the subject of this debate, particularly what happened in Ireland, were these genocides. If you have the ability to save your own people, but you deliberately choose to hold them in contempt and let them die when you can't save them, you have committed a genocide against them. You intentionally destroyed them through your lack of action. I want to finish by quoting Michael David, the late 19th century Parnell contemporary. God brought the blight, but the English created the famine. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to now vote with the proposition that the famine was a genocide committed upon the Irish people, and I thank you. And uh, please now welcome up speaking first for the opposition, Mr. Finbar Rogers. The famine was no more genocide, or Angkor War was no more genocide than is the contemporary famines in Yemen or Ethiopia today. The reality is that Britain, working from a position of pure, pragmatic, and short sighted self interest, drained Ireland of its resources and created a circumstance where there was a massive working class which was entirely subsistent on one crop. And when that failed, Italy led to a massive disaster. The quote from Michael Delvitt, in fact, works to our position. They created the, the Brexit effectively created circumstances by which a famine would be disastrous. And then, as insurance companies would say, an act of God made it a disaster. Um, uh, unless the proposition is prepared to suggest that the Duke of Wellington performed some kind of rain dance for the crops to fail, and they really don't have much of a case. British attitudes towards Ireland have always been, not very much, have always been and continue to be uh, defined by shocking ignorance and a total lack of disinterest. The late historian of UCD, Roland Fallon, in his book Fatal Path, effectively summarizes this when he said, the First World War gave Asquith the perfect chance to do what he had always wanted about Ireland. Nothing. <laughs> On that point? Yes. Surely you, okay. Surely you cannot... You cannot... I don't want to ask my question. That's fine. You can do it later on. Surely it is clear that when there is money and power to be gained, the British have an interest. So to say that yes, the British have an interest in Ireland is a fallacy. Precisely what I said. They drained all the resources they could from it. Wait. And then, oh, dear God, they're all dying. <laughs> Who saw that coming? <laughs> That's just what I said. Um, we're not disagreeing. Uh, further evidence of this can be seen today. Every, if you read any newspaper, any day, anyone from Jake Rees-Mogg to Karen Bradley, and their mental inertia, which is just hair-pullingly, is America. But this debate, though, 
It speaks to a wider point about conspiracy theories in general. So now what is assumed is that these things are always the work of shadowy figures in some but what it actually boils down to is human sheer incompetence and ineptitude. Usually American, in the modern world, because Americans are stupid. But quite often, Brits. The Brits are not stupid, they're actually quite clever. But they are also very silly. <laughs> and shockingly Arab. Like, clever, so arrogant that you'll just hit them and be against them because they annoy you. <laughs> uh, the insidious side of this effect um, uh, is the way, is lead, it leads us to a way of thinking that we lose sight of genuine and honest to God conspiracy theories. Um, there was only a few weeks ago there were people marching through Derry for science in J.R. Jackson. Speaking to a time when innocent civil rights marchers were shot in the streets of Derry. And it has been accepted by the British government that the British Army were acting totally unlawfully. And yet there have been no legal ramifications. Worse still was the case of, which, of effective racial profiling. After a bomb went off in Guildford, the uh, English police forces drove to a heavily Irish area and picked up two people walking down the road and uh, charged a random Irish family of crimes that they not only did not commit, but could not possibly have committed. Uh, resulting in a 14-year-old boy being held in maximum security prison. On that point, okay. what does any of this have to do with family benefits? <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's more important in terms, as conspiracies go. Um, is that these people are still living. We're referring to the question of where I'm And then what's sort of at all, as to where we are now, is the case of the car poison, which was effectively managed as a brothel by the security forces for use for the troubles. On that point? Yeah. You used the phrase more important. I'm sure you think one of the greatest tragedies that this nation has ever encountered, that the millions dead is more important to you. Well, it wasn't actually millions dead. It was a million emigrated. Um, someone less than a million died. On that point. The greatest tragedy that this nation counted, more people died as a result of the 1798 rebellion. More people died as a result of the 1798 Comradite uh, invasion. More people died as well as the 1798 rebellion than as a result of as a result of the Comorite invasion. This nation has suffered a lot of tragedies, so we could be here for a very long time. Um, but basically, the support of motion is support that side of republicanism, which appears to be the mainstream at the moment, which pushes for a border pool as quickly as possible and as soon as possible, and is perfectly happy to see a simple majority pass. You know, 50 plus 1, not 52, 48, but 50 plus 1. Um, rather than recognising the complexity of the reality of the last two, two centuries. And <coughs> instituting a kind of comprehensive, comprehensive plan to rebuild this nation uh, from all of its parts involved. In short, we should all just rise up. Thank you, Mark.
And speaking secondly for the proposition, please welcome up Mr. Cameron Mullen. Just to address what the first the opposition said, a couple of things, and with it's not the relevance, the importance of it. We're arguing about the um, whether it was genocide or not. I just didn't think that was relevant at all. And there's a mention the border poll and Republican debate. I've just written here. It's probably I'm glad it's probably best to this point home now. Consumption was not aware of the religious political constitution of a man four weeks ago. We are not here to level our public and our national critique of the British government from the time of memorial up until the Guildford bombing, or this week even, citing the families of the of Jason. We are here to coldly and rashly analyse the events that occurred from 1845 51 and present you the case that the British government's actions, or lack thereof, was the reason why there was a famine and that it was a genocide. The world we, uh, in which we live in today has witnessed countless examples of genocide that have prompted international human rights laws to define what the term actually means. We might have given a proper definition there in the first part. The United Nations defined it in the Article 2 of the Convention of Genocide as an act committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. And with relevance to the debate tonight, it includes within this category the act of deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about physical destruction in whole or in part. The question is then whether the actions of the government were deliberate. For example, i.e., were they capable of preventing such devastation? And by failing to do so, were they aware of the consequences of their omission? <laughs> now, there may be a debate about whether omission is the same action, but I'll continue on just saying that extract from speech made by then colonial secretary at the time, Earl Grey, in the House of Lords in 1846, demonstrated that there were members of the government who were aware of the impact of the decisions on the crisis in Ireland. He says, My lords, it is only by its Ireland's government that such evils could have been produced. The mere fact that Ireland is in so deplorable and wretched condition sees whole volumes of argument, and is of itself a complete and irrefutable proof of the misgovernment to which it has been subjected. Continuing, up, or, continuing on from Hawkins' couple of points on uh, British policy in the period, um, how it was coloured by laissez faire economics, and the attitude of the Prime Minister at the time, it was Robert Page in 46 and uh, Lord John Russell until 1851, and their aversion of interfering with market forces could be seen as the government's reasoning for inaction. I believe this was a strong component of the motivation. It could also be said that it was the apathy towards Ireland and the Irish that coloured the view and informed false decisions that meant very little attempts would be taken. Yeah, very well. Uh, just a question about the idea of uh, the tax and, uh, levied on landowners mm-hmm. or individuals that were in poverty. Uh, that led obviously to them being turfed out of their, their homes, but was that not a policy by Westminster to try and ease the, the suffering of, of those that were, were most impoverished on the island of Ireland? I would say things like that and the relief, tokenism, kind of makes themselves feel better more than it really helps anyone else. It might have made them more John Russell's awake, maybe conscious feel better than morality, but it doesn't think it really is as fancy, not the kind. That was your, it. On your previous point. Yeah, one. Um, so, if you say that the laissez-faire economic policies were certainly an aspect, but discrimination might have been an aspect, mm-hmm. I think if you're going to argue that this was a genocide, then you need to give more substantive proof 
that the leading figures of the British government did hold prejudicial views towards Irish people? Fifty percent. Fifty percent. It could also be said that there was an apathy towards Ireland and the heirs of the Union and foreign policy decisions that meant very little steps would be taken. Now, I'm agreeing with you technically on this. On apathy or economic policy, it could possibly be argued that there was no deliberate intention to inflict such devastation and death, and therefore this could not be seen as a genocide in the UN conventions, the narrow definition of it. But no, I completely reject the apathy and lazy character part. Apathy, not at all. I think that's true enough. I do not think for one second there's a lack of self-interest in this island that could result in the children of the richest nation on earth lying in ditches with the grass just running green from their mouths. I do not think for one second it was something more malign, something more deliberate that would motivate such a preeminent force as the executive of the central government of the British Empire who sit and watch their families on silence except for the cries of the last starving child. From politician to pauper, a thought so vital to the Great Britain and affected the minds of the men who were charged with government of Ireland, and that when the crop failed, famine and pestilence would rage and ravage the land. I thought so heinous, it would make you lose faith in God, because that's what they believed. These ultra evangelists, these moralists and providentialists, believe that it was God that had sent his light to reduce the overpopulated Irish, like Michael Davis said, and damn them for their sins, providence, and pest control. Malthus was a political economist, or a Minister, off the top of my head, big faith in his ideas that overpopulation was a problem, and it was. He didn't address it, and then thought it would be easier maybe just to let it sort itself out. Population gets too high, goes again. On this point, yeah. um, you've, uh, you've talked there about the famine as seeing an act of God, and of course, um, Trevelyan did say that he believed God had caused famine, but surely that's just a Christian viewpoint generally rather than, which nearly everybody was a Christian at the time, rather than believing that people deserved it necessarily. True, but the idea of providence and manifest destiny are taken today, and we'll just wrap it in a second, could not, could not be seen in our modern context as the limited genocidal, uh, genocidal uh, mindset of the administration. In 1846, Robert Peace Home writes just to show that he was surrounded with people that did really believe this. He thought, it is awful to observe that the Almighty God humbles the pride of such a low nation. If a belief that God was delivered to a nation of hundred people, and you therefore must not interfere with this cleansing fire to see this good and holy thing, if that is what you believe, is that not the mindset of what you would describe a genocidal administration, something you may see today and be appalled by? And if you can't describe it, is that, what can you? Keep that in mind, providence and pest control. In such a world, what then would be the absolute details of Ireland? Protectionist measures, as was mentioned, would have done the trick, but would face one of the most extensive food shortfall for a century. They decided not to close the traditional but of course, to keep food within Ireland or to prohibit the distillation of grain. These measures were traditional responses, food shortages, and the failure to implement them beggars for relief. The blight was not solely an Irish phenomenon and appeared throughout Europe in 1845-46. Famine, however, was a rare occurrence as the governments of other European nations implemented the practical measures that meant their people would not die. These fatalists put more stock in the atonement and repentance of the Irish than in barbarous relief measures. Limited measures were taken within a year and when 90% of the crop failed in 1846, uh, they were uh, held back by the then replacement Prime Minister, Lord John Russell. I want to again reiterate what my colleague finished with his piece with, 
the immortal words of Michael Dobbin, go out for the plight of English street famine. Ladies and gentlemen, I now ask you to vote with the proposition that the famine was a genocide committed against the Irish people. because of the potato crop blight experienced famine and furthermore there were measures that could have been put in place that prevented it in Britain such as whenever the, um, the three and a half million pounds worth of potatoes went out in the food social ash there was and quite literally tokenistic 100,000 pounds worth of grain gave in and that was still at market value which many people couldn't afford so there could have been measures implemented quite easily by any sensible government to have stopped the disaster well, there's, there's two points there. Firstly, I would say there was, no, there was no single European country as well as Ireland was on the potato. So you can't really say that situations of completely different scales are comparable. Um, secondly, on the point of um, imported imports, I uh, don't I would just say Russia was an outlier of like 90% and 
culminated in the 1798 rebellion, which showed great dissatisfaction with the British domination. In response to this, the British government decided to integrate Ireland with Britain. This proposal received widespread support. Many believed that union and Catholic emancipation would go hand in hand, as well as bringing economic benefits to White said it's very poor from the Protestant embassy, but after a lot of rage, and well, that was to, to the um, Protestant uh, and the Catholic Church as well as the Catholic middle class were entirely behind this proposal. Um, okay, so however, King George III famously blocked uh, Catholic relief, blaming the proposal on his madness. This caused the British government William Pitt to resign, and, and King George and his successor uh, blocked emancipation for the next 28 years until 1829, which did display more bad faith to the Catholics of Ireland. The Act of Union and the support of Parliament in government for full rights for Catholics does prove, however, that there was strong goodwill towards Ireland from the British establishment. The Drummond administration of the 1930s made sure part of landlords and orangemen. As for the governments of the 1840s, neither Robert Peel nor John Russell bore ill will toward Ireland. Um, I'll let me finish my point. Peel has been described by QB Professor Liam Kennedy as having a constructive and active interest in Ireland, and Russell expressed a long-held desire to bring justice to Ireland. Okay. Um, Liam is notoriously um, anti the fact that the genocide in fact he debated Tim Pat Coogan on this issue uh, last year early on the point that you don't need anti Irishness, you need blind indifference, which is what they have. I'm, I'm getting to this point. Um, at, at this time, um, economic liberalism and pro free trade theories of Adam Smith and David Carr were treated as, as received wisdom particularly after the Cold War debates. At this time, only one in five males could vote after the latest reforms in 1832. Britain was ruled by an oligarchy of class and gender, not ethnicity. Adam Smith is still regarded by many as the greatest economist of all time. Therefore, how can we consider in good faith the failure of laissez-faire classical economics constitute neglect when many of the brightest minds, many of the brightest minds of the age considered those practices to be the most appropriate actions. Um, Highbrow magazines and papers like The Economist and The Times argued for non-intervention. And The Times said that, la the, that the laissez-faire policy could be one of the greatest experiments of the age. As I've said in my introduction, the famine is too often seen as consistent with a narrative that sees British and Irish people in, in constant opposition. But we should remember that the United Kingdom was a political and economic oligarchy that represented the upper classes of Britain and Ireland, not just England. Workhouses, squalor, pollution, and, and malnutrition affected the working class across Britain and Ireland. The death rate in London for children under five was 33% in many London boroughs. The everyday mistreatment of the entire working class <coughs> has gone unnoticed because of how normalised and normal it was. The working class of Great Britain was equal to the working class of Ireland and poverty. The main thing that divided them in the 1940s was the massive and unprecedented crop failure, not ethnic genocide. 
the crop failure was exacerbated by a completely unrepresented oligarchy who believed that what was in their interest was in everyone's interest. I therefore ask members to reject this motion. Please welcome on to speaking thirdly and lastly for prompt Mr. Paul Ricardo. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't stand here as a nationalist or an Irishman. I stand here as a person who looks at history and sees an island that was decimated by famine. An event that occurred that completely changed the face of this island. The simple facts of the Irish famine are is that we lost almost half of our population because of this event, be it through death or emigration. Look around this room, one in two would be gone. Well, actually no, that's wrong. Because people in this room are members of the Literary and Scientific Society of Queen's University Belfast, established in 1850. And I'm sure we all agree that members back then would have been of a high social standing. So I don't think very many of them would have succumbed to the famine. And this leads on to a very clear point. And we make this mistake. We talk about the famine being a tragedy for Ireland. Dublin was very, very minorly affected. Belfast, not so much. The further west you went, the more the tragedies occurred. It was not a nation that suffered. It was a unique set of people within that nation. And that brings us on to our first point. And this is the first point defined by the UN as a point of genocide, a specifically targeted population. <coughs> the specifically targeted population was the Native Irish, the Celts, as they were referred to in London. These people have been pushed off their land by Cromwell, as he famously said, to help our country. The second key point outlined by the United Nations, which helps foster and bolster the argument of a genocide, is a clear history of discrimination against this targeted population. On that point, sir, thank you. And most genocides, this simply does not come about immediately. There is a clear historical narrative that exists. The penal laws, first passed in 1695, strictly enforced inhibited rights of Irish Catholics, of Native Irish, to live and thrive in their own society. And William McAfee Thackeray wrote, it is a frightful document against ourselves, in English, one of the most melancholy stories in the whole world of the brutal slaughter and persecution of the English regime in Ireland. <coughs> this is all true, yes. Did you say that the, the, the British government had a greater interest in decimating the Irish people than in gaining the economic uh, economic goods from That's a very good question. And in fact, it brings me on to my key point here, is that it suited the British government in economic terms to decimate the native Irish. And this is the key issue here. The key facet of genocide is an intent to destroy. It's very difficult to prove. We will do this in the proposition tonight. By arguing this point, I'd like to engage some of the first speaker. There was no shortage of food in Ireland, though after his events there might be some shortage of Guinness. But, um, <laughs> there was no shortage of food in Ireland during the foul. <laughs> Shocking ignorance and total lack of disinterest existed in England. And he's correct in saying this. But as I raised my POI, this disinterest 
did not extend to economic benefit. Britain seemed to reap all they could out of this island. And it was not working well for them anymore. Although current desk. Um, You've cited my colleague's comments there was complete uh, disinterest in Ireland, but do you not think it would be more appropriate to uh, target my argument where I, I set forward uh, evidence that there wasn't uh, disinterest from from uh, No, I, I agree with you. That's, that's the point that I'm making is that there wasn't disinterest. There was interest in how they could make as much economic benefit as possible. But this structure wasn't working anymore in Ireland. Because what we had was an overpopulation of the land. The population was growing exponentially after the arrival of the potato. Then what we had was the strip farming, the inefficient ways in which the Irish agriculture system worked, and that tenants would raise their crops simply to revive, survive. And this was growing peasant population. The British government knew something was coming. They knew that it was unsustainable. So much so that Lord Palmerston, Prime Minister at the time, and I quote, look, don't we all agree that the solution to the land problem is to get the surplus population off the land? And how would they go about doing this? And why would they want to free up the land? After the famine, if you look at strictly, strictly economic terms, the labour market was freed up, the small and efficient tenant farms were no more, and this unlocked massive economic potential was harnessed by the British government on the island. And the point about the more important, it was one of the more important issues, yes? Uh, do you not think Lord Palmerston's comments are more related to a desire to industrialise the population of Ireland? No, I do not. Simply because Lord Palmerston and other members of the Hangar Party and other were informed by rising and leading Irish politicians that something needs to be done. And yes, you said industrialisation, increased infrastructure, perhaps a main way of immigration was presented to the British government, which they simply ignored. Another quote from Lord Palmerston, we look forward to the day when the cat is as rare on the banks of the Shannon as a red man on the banks of the Hudson. But it doesn't take much to identify what he means by this statement. He wants the removal of the Irish population of the land. And when the famine came about, it was the most convenient and easiest way for them to implement this policy. Yes, it is difficult to acknowledge the family was a genocide. There is still an argument that has been presented by the opposition and been very well presented that this was simply a tragedy that suited the British. But the British fought on the tragedy through their system. If you inflict a wound on a man and you let him bleed to death, it is not his bleeding that it is your wound you've inflicted. The wound the British inflicted on Ireland was the way in which they fostered through their lousy fur economy a savage, unfair system that left the native population at the bottom and allowed them to suffer and die when the famine struck. They did not close the ports. They exported the grain and the crops that Ireland was producing to feed their growing empires abroad in America and abroad to the east. There was riots at the port as the starving population watched food being shipped across the ocean when they starved and died. NGP Taylor declared all of Ireland was a Belsen, in reference to the notorious concentration camp. Not all concentration camps were death camps. Others simply fostered a culture of death, where they created the conditions which allowed those people to perish. During the famine, the island of Ireland was no different than the native Irish. I would urge you to vote with the proposition that the famine was an act of genocide.
from the opposition and the debate as a <laughs> this is disorder of the highest degree. Closing for the opposition and therefore the debate as a whole, please welcome up Training Officer Mr. Russell. I'll give him time to pop over the loud calls on the boys before. <laughs> Do you want a cold one, Russell? No. He wants a warm one. <laughs> I wish the cold embrace of the great <laughs> So, uh, good evening everybody. What we have here is a primary point between the two sides is connecting around the definition of genocide. We've both accepted the UN definition of genocide here, and throughout my speech I'm going to explain why the way in which they're interpreting it is inherently untenable and leads to what occurred in Ireland in regards to the family to be a tragedy but not a genocide. I've got three main points for you today. I'm going to talk about what a genocide is and why this isn't one. I'm going to talk about the dangers of diminishing the meaning of a term like genocide. And finally, I'm going to talk about laissez-faire economics and why this is an example of the failure of that. So, we have the requirement for intention for something to be defined as a genocide. You must actively seek to destroy this group. You must seek its destruction. You must wish to see them utterly wiped out. Uh, examples of genocide between Mr. Slim and Rwanda is a good example of a genocide, where one group is actively seeking to kill and remove the other from the land. But what we have here is a situation, no thank you, is where help was not offered where nothing, or nothing effective, shall we say, was done to fix this problem because of the belief in the economic system at the time. We cannot place responsibility in this regard for not helping because in that system, under that definition of what a genocide is put forward by the proposition, we can take things like homelessness to be a genocide. We can take social inequality in general to be genocide. Go ahead, Oliver. Um, you're saying we can take things like homelessness to be a genocide. However, the difference between homelessness and between uh, the Irish situation are very distinct enough. I mean, Ireland is a nation where the entire nation was being left started. In the case of homelessness, they can be people from yeah, any okay. background. Across the world today, there are nations starving because of the inherent social inequality perpetuated by the West. Are you suggesting the West are perpetuating genocide upon them? No, they are using their capitalist system to create an inherent economic and cruel inequality, but they are not perpetuating genocide in this regard. And we cannot hold the British government responsible for this as a genocide. Justice, no thank you. So, there is no inherent intent to destroy the Irish people here. There is all we see as an incompetence and a focus on laissez-faire economics and the worshiping of the market as God. No, thank you. So, why is it important that this is not defined as a genocide? Why can we not define this as a genocide? Because we really like to increase the broadness of terms nowadays. We love it. We think it's great. And um, communists, we love to throw that one around more broadly. Fascists, we really like to throw that one broadly. <laughs> genocide. The main point of clash here we have is, is, you know, is this a genocide or not? We have the emotional argument, it was bad, it was a lot of people dying, so it was genocide, and we have our factual basis in the fact that it's not. It's a famine. We have a word for what it was, and that was a famine. On that point? No, thank you. The famine was a famine, and we should treat it with all the socio-economic baggage that comes with it. 
Because when we treat this as a genocide, it completely misrepresents it on a sort of international political sphere. No, thank you. We cannot accept that this is not an equivalent situation to something like Armenia. This is not an equivalent situation to something like uh, Rwanda. This is not an equivalent situation to something like the Holocaust. It cannot be compared in those terms, and should be compared in the terms of family and social inequality. No, thank you. Um, so. We just can't call it something that it isn't. Uh, because if we do, we look at the social economic, like the famine was an issue of economic inequality. It was an issue of class, essentially, like at the end of the day. Um, thinking, you know, goods being shipped away to upper classes um, out of the hands of those who actually need it. Uh, it was laissez-faire economics at its core. It was brutal, brutal oppression for economics. But it was, it was the reason that was was because they believed that economic system to be right and perfect. It was not because they were intentionally going out of their way to destroy that economic system. Yeah? Yeah. It wasn't just economics, like I said. It was maybe the opposite, but definitely an inherent dislike to despise of the Irish. That I believe. They wouldn't have done this if it was... Yeah, economic. thank you. I'll, I'll take that point. And go on and talk about the fact that, yes, there were a few people who you can find who actively hated the Irish, but the overarching worship within Western liberal activism at this time was laissez-faire economics. It was the worship of market as God. And we can see this through, no, beyond all ideology. Yes, you'll have your few ideologues who hated the Irish and probably be better because of it. But the true essence of the issue was individual landowners consumed by their own greed wanting to take these things and you know, ship them off and make their money from that. This, this is, that, that's what famine was at its core. It was a socio-economic disaster. It was an issue of class. It was not something we can attribute to an action of genocide by one group against the other. Uh, no, thank you. It was, it is something that we really need to pay attention, and we really need to highlight the importance of this, because this is what happens when we treat money as more important in people's lives. This is what happens when we worship the market as this all-divine being. On that point, we almost swear loyalty. No, thank you. Um, and because that's very interesting. Carr had a point in his speech where he talked about the fact that, yes, technically after the famine, there were you know, economic conditions were better. But that's exactly what laissez-faire economics wanted. In a way, laissez-faire economics worked. Um, it was not genocide so much as it was laissez-faire economics coming to its natural conclusion, which is, no thank you, people not mattering and money being all the people are concerned with, or profit, or whatever you, know, you want to talk about, the market is God, essentially. Um, this, we cannot suggest it was an attempt at murder. Um, it, if we think that this was a genocide, we are operating off the same kind of morality that suggests that if we're walking down the street, and we see a homeless person, and we don't give them uh, <coughs> some money out of our pocket, and they later go and starve to death, we're suggesting that we murder them. We cannot operate off that morality that it intrinsically doesn't work. So, to conclude for you all, we can't define the famine as a genocide because we haven't, there is no intent to commit genocide here. There is no active intent to destroy the world. By calling it a genocide, we do disservice to the term on a political sphere and make the term far too wide and ultimately useless. The term that means everything means nothing. And finally, that the reason that this occurred was not due to an act of attempt to run it genocide, it was the natural conclusion of laissez-faire economics and shows why you should abandon that stupid system inherently. Thank you very much.
to Mr. Nairman. Please get one more, sorry, one more round of applause for all of our speakers this evening. some rounds of questions. So, firstly we have questions for the prophet, if there are any in the room. I know he has one. Uh, Mr. Perry. Uh, I'll just put next to my question. Firstly, why is it in the British government's direct interest to decimate the Irish people as a racist? And the second part is, you talk all about philosopher economics. Well, and that is supposed to be sit back and like, let things play out how they see. Surely that contradicts an active Genocide. There's not a genocide involves going in and actively killing people. So, surely that's a bit of a conflict. Uh, in terms of why they want to investigate their population, as Russell said, in terms of a suit to clear the land of that population and a brand new system, uh, in terms of the activeness of it, activeness and intent are kind of clearly different things. If you intend to destroy something, you see this opportunity, and you have, there's an interesting thing in law, it's called the assumption of duty. Um, I know I would be no If I see you driving a lake right now, I'll save you. I would be But if I soon care of you, I will save you or I'll be held liable. As citizens, especially after the Act of Union of the as citizens of the United Kingdom, the British government had an assumption of duty to care for those. And that was the action. The action is, ironically, a disaction. And would anyone from the opposition like to respond to that? Yes. Um, well, I, I think the question, in my opinion, is slightly flawed because we can't assume that the committers of genocide th uh, are thinking rationally. But I will say that um, from the proposition, we've had some misinterpreted quotes. We've had a general feeling that they might have discriminated against uh, uh, the Irish. But this is, as I tried to argue in my speech, this is all singularly built on the narrative that Irish people and British people are opposed, which I don't think is correct. And um, we move now to any questions in the room for the option. Um, Mr. Tuck. If we assume that it was a famine and not a genocide, why didn't the British Empire get involved in helping the people since Ireland was supposedly for the Irish people were subjects of the British Empire? Why didn't they? get involved and help them medically or for that provide um, for being very simple and very and I'll, I'll I think you'll agree with me it's a very stupid reason not to get involved but it's the reason they had was they worship laissez faire economics. They believe the market should have its way and the market should reach its natural conclusion and if the market was no. deciding this is how things work, that's how they did it and they couldn't No, no. Can I add on that? <laughs> Really was minimal, and I would argue that the government was trying to give people a certain element of hope 
and then they're dying anyway, and that is probably cruel in my opinion. The example I gave earlier of green in ports that were nowhere near enough to be anyone. Right. Uh, I'll now take any abstaining points on the motion, as long as it's directed to neither side or to both equally. Is this an abstaining point, Chris? Mr. Um You just mentioned uh, the Bengal um, families. Um, with them, there was great contempt for the. Um, in the MP. Well, you haven't sort of put a case forward that there was that contempt for the Irish at the time, or at least in your speeches that, have, that hasn't been clear. So, like, is there evidence of that contempt for Irish people as there were in those families? And now for the other side, um, in the case of other families um, that have been called by um, imperial powers, that famine has been used as a tool of control, it has been used as a tool of uh, genocide in other situations. Um, so I sort of got from the first speaker that famine was not the same as genocide. So like, why does this, why does it not count as a genocide if the word deliberate? Okay, told yeah. The proposition responds quite a large question. Now, you were saying about contempt towards the Indians and the Irish, you have demonstrated there's the same contempt towards the Irish. Uh, I don't know if you need to do so, just a wee bit. Chris, during some of the speeches, McConnor and exact quotes from Lord Palmerston, which I will read out again. We look forward to the day when a kelp will be as rare in the banks of the Shannon as a red man in the banks of the Hudson. And the Irish were very much seen as, okay, they're technically part of this active union thing, but they're not really the same as us at that time. I think actually, I'm sure the Easter Rising debate, some of us had photos now, it's actually from the 1840s, a uh, Punch magazine cartoon showing the Irish as monkeys, very simian-like in their attitude. So I think it's safe to say that the Irish were viewed as inferior, and the entire attitude of I never that I was so much that will happen was definitely proceeding in British attitudes at that time. Consistent in British attitudes at that time. And the uh, opposition to respond to the second part of this question. Um, can I just get a refresher of what was your target? Three points of clarification. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it, I believe it was, why is this not a genocide? It's, yeah. it's used as a tool, it has been used as a tool for genocide, so why is this different? Yeah, famine has been used okay. as a tool, like, to, can famine be a genocide, why is this not? Yeah, I think what separates um, the case of Ireland and the Great Famine from most genocides is, in most genocides you have a situation where people whenever they're fleeing from the genocide, they will flee to wherever they can find safe haven. We see this across the world today. But about, in the case of the Great Famine, about half of the people fleeing the Great Famine went to Great Britain. There was no, and they were, they were welcome, they, they experienced xenophobia, sure, but 14 million people in Great Britain are descended from Irish people, and they are extraordinarily well integrated into the population, almost invisible. Well, that's the point if I continue, so I'm great. Also, the, the, the I, how did the form? Um, so, um, if you look at how, to any particular set of Irish immigrants to Great Britain, 
the discrimination only lasted for them, the, that for one generation. It didn't occur to their children, uh, is what I'm, I'm trying to say. Right. And we'll uh, look back around for another round of questions. This is back to the proposition. And I'll ask that um, all questions and answers be kept as brief as possible. And I'll go to Mr. Ryan to get your last name. I'm Alright, so in order for me to like, believe what you're saying is true, right? You're going to need to like, like, give me some sort of like, level of parent to know the genocide, right? Because genocide is essentially, like, you know, ethically, like, the complete denial of women's rights, right? Like, the, like, the denial of like, all our rights and the rights of those high and high right? If you look at like, people of Ireland during this time, like, they could vote, they could vote front, they could own land, they could leave. You know, Jews couldn't do that, people in Holodomo couldn't do that. So how can I like, possibly draw parity to these genocide in the family? And you know, somehow say that like, this was a genocide, when like, other genocides did not have this innate characteristic? Uh, in terms of the rights of Irish, as I said, like, the penal laws have been enacted. So they couldn't vote. It was no one man who vote, it was rather as much land you had was the vote you had. So their rights were apparent. Right? In terms of they could leave, yes, they could leave, but they left in coffin ships that most of them couldn't, couldn't afford. In terms of comparison with other genocides, I'm sure the most notorious one, unfortunately, is of course the Holocaust. I made reference to my conclusion there in that there was a culture of death clearly fostered in certain concentration camps which created the which created the sort of effects that resulted in death, and this was a huge genocide. And as I maintained in my speech, that the entire island of Ireland for the native Irish was created into this culture of death that allowed them to suffer and unfortunately die. So that's how we draw comparisons. And that is a comparison that we do draw. And um, it's, it's kind of general, it's a very difficult thing to define. It's a very recent definition in terms of history and scholarship, which is why um, expansion of definition is useful in this regard, and it's why we can draw comparisons from the past in terms of opening in Ukraine as well. Thank you. Opposition respond. Um, what what the uh, proposition member has just said is completely incorrect. The penal laws were repealed in 1829. Catholics were given full rights in that bill. And like I said in my speech, I don't think you're listening. The British government had supported full Catholic emancipation from 1801, and it was the opposition of the British kings that prevented it becoming reality. Yeah, something will say you should have So, we'll go to any questions for the opposition. Uh, Mr. Heron. Um, this is kind of more directed towards the process for us. If I understand correctly, it was that the famine was caused by the very young policy. Um, but, like many other genocides, are not caused by ideology, and uh, I apologise if I gave off the impression that I was saying it was the direct and only cause. I mean, and that's more that it was what allowed it to be perpetuated so readily. Um, in this regard, uh, no, I do not think that um, it is like the reason the famine because like the reason the famine occurred was as we established from the very beginning. Uh, the potato crop failing with life, but the act of God functionally in insurance terminology, and we can go no further than that, and as the cause of the genocide. Uh, there needs to be this direct intent for to plot to qualify as genocide, and we do not believe that exists, and we do not believe it's qualified as genocide. Proposition to respond. Okay, um, 
yes, I'm going to largely that you have been quite near. I think you're 99% right. However, I want to also do that the muscle here. Yes, I agree. I don't think Lacey Fair was the only cause of the famine. I think a complete lack of regard towards the Irish was the cause of the famine from the British. I think a policy which was deliberately going around of not helping them and never clearly needed help also a cause of the famine. And I think utterly views of um, other powers of the colonial expansionism of that time led to kind of suffering and death. So yes, a very good point logic. I think there's also other factors that you need to be considered. Okay. I'll move on now to any abstaining points in the room. Mr. Perry. I just want to raise one point in relation to Catholic emancipation. Like, I don't think, uh, certainly not in 1801, where the British government failed for Catholic emancipation. I think it wasn't for the efforts of uh, Daniel O'Connell who was often ridiculed, uh, very much so, by members of the British government and the House of Commons. Uh, he campaigned so badly for Catholic emancipation. And it wasn't until, I think, 1829 that uh, the, pro the process of emancipation began, and it wasn't fulfilled for, say, 10 years after that, to some extent. So there certainly was no, Catholic emancipation was not really open arms, but the British government was actually ridiculed him. If you look at the records, Daniel O'Connell was Certainly not treated warmly by the government. Opposition to the I just think that we, uh, that Daniel O'Connell uh, was disrespected by, very much of the respect of member of parliament. In fact, uh, Charles Dickens, who was a parliamentary reporter at the time, uh, noted on occasions that the Collins did this way, which it brings him to tears. As an individual, uh, he was very much a force of respect that he deserved. And largely, the hyper-animosity was on an individual basis. The Irish at large were disregarded and dismissed. Uh, in fact, uh, there's an article in the Irish Times, I don't know, a good few months ago, about uh, when Oscar Wilde first started to make a name for himself in London, he was originally referred to as Mr. Wilde of Borneo. And when everybody was drawn, he was always drawn with certain features like, you know, thick lips and a big nose. Accentuated to make him look a little bit more you know, like a black person. Uh, I ask you to like bring this background to relevance of this rubbish. Pax Britannica was obviously that you know, the British are on the law of whole superior, but being superior does not mean you want to kill everyone else. Um, uh, when President Sintar Kavanagh was signed in protest of the King's Beetle. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the British as empire builders were very much different from, say, for example, the French, who were actively malevolent and violent. You are once again digressing. We're going to have to ask you to wrap this up very quickly for us to set up. Well, points that have been very. Do the. There's a proposition wish to respond to then you don't have to. <laughs> 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 uh, I like lost the uh, We're gonna wrap back round to a final round of questions back to the proposition. I'm gonna ask that we all try and keep our questions and answers again as briefly as possible because I think that a lot of people still want to say something. So questions for the proposition. Mr. Hickman. Two points for third speak for the proposition. Firstly, what, do you, what is your perspective on the comments by your first speaker that the genocide was a negligent genocide given the definition you accept? 
and also the consideration that you spoke about the genocide to be directed against the uh, economically lower class members of uh, Western Ireland when genocide is definitionally not capable of being committed against a political class. <coughs> By the UN definition, you accept it. So in response to the first definition of uh, negligence, uh, genocide and negligence, um, as I pointed out to very uh, earlier in this question, uh, the assumption of duty you apply here, and I'm sure you're very aware of the assumption of duty, that once you assume duty of person or people, you must care for them as if you carry out there. And second, in regards to the second point of five, political classes cannot be defined um, as genocide. I would say political class in terms of the West of Ireland, it extended to a defined people in the Irish, being a mostly Catholic and mostly um, Gaelic speaking as well. So in terms of it was simply on a political class, if you want to go on religious grounds, it was Catholics. If you want to go on other grounds, it would have been those people living west of the Shannon, of course. And if you look at this, if you draw a line up from um, Limerick to Derry, it was those on the left of that line who lost their lives on the right and then from the opposition on this one, the point of uh, how West Warren was uh, particularly badly affected by the famine, um, I just want to bring up Donegal, which is as far as the West as even Dieck in Ireland, um, is one of the countries which was least affected by the famine because if you look at the map of Donegal, it is mostly off coast, and the main economy there was fishing. And so there is a another uh, source of food there. Um, and it's gone with the rest of Ulster, where there is Antrim, which had Belfast, and Down, Down Armagh, which had Europe, um, where uh, other industries, apart from agriculture, prevail. Um, people largely managed to uh, survive, whereas um, uh, things like not uh, were affected particularly badly, that's just something I just wanted to point out on that from the Right. Um, any questions now for the opposition, uh, Mr. Murphy? I'm going to make uh, an argument against uh, the legal definition of genocide based on some common law principles, kind of a, a contradiction in terms, but I, I think the common law can establish some really interesting moral principles, and I'm going to stretch back long into the days of my, my criminal law, in first year, which is longer ago than I'm, I, I care to admit. <laughs> but um, there's a concept in the common law of England Wales of what is called oblique intention. And what has been discussed and a lot tonight is the concept of well, you only intend something when you when you willingly, you know, uh, when you willingly commit an action of killing someone. That that is intention, that is the, 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 the textbook uh, definition of intention. But oblique intention encapsulates the concept of uh, a set of circumstances that are seen as virtually certain is an intended consequence of your actions. So I think uh, Mr. Nairn talked about the fact of, you know, that we're, we're talking about socioeconomic circumstances happening. Um, some people are winners, some people are losers. Uh, it not being a game of monopoly, you're not just losing a game, a board game, you're losing your, your means of subsistence, you're losing your life, I think. Uh, you've tried very hard to pin this, de this definition in a very technical kind of legal way of saying, well, well we, didn't, we didn't intend it in the traditional sense, but it was a consequence of our actions that was almost virtually certain to occur. And in my book, at, at least on a moral level, that is an intended consequence. 
I, I don't think you've adequately addressed the fact that um, you know a, mi a mission in a large sense in, in that in those terms can be on a, a very a morally culpable tension. And I, I think you, you failed to address that argument tonight. I think insofar as it, it was virtually certain to occur there were losers in this laissez-faire model, you are at least in some way morally culpable, if not legally culpable. Yeah. Uh, may I respond? Um, we don't for a second suggest that it is morally abhorrent what occurred and morally abhorrent what was allowed to happen. What we simply say is this does not qualify as genocide under the particular definition we've been operating under this debate for the entirety of that UN definition. Um, ultimately, yeah, we don't, yes, we agree with you that it's a bad thing. We agree with you that it is utterly morally unacceptable, but it's not genocide. And it doesn't fall under our definition as genocide, and we reject the definition which defines it as genocide. Is the proposition which responds to that at all? Um, Great point. Yeah. And in terms, Russell used the we're using the United Nations term of genocide. Uh, it is an incredibly opening definition. Genocide is something that is very rarely seen with a defined clear definition. If you look up the paper that the are looking up, there's a number of substantive factors to talk about that. In terms of the intention, I'm sure it's very, very clear that the list of factors there are indeed themselves oblique. The intent is there to be oblique, be by some sort of duty, the intent is clearly there genocide. Right. Well, we'll now move to one final saying point to close this out, unless one doesn't exist. Mm, oh, flip. Mr. Kerr. Is the fact that famine was an endemic problem in Ireland up to this point? Naturally, nowhere near on this level. Uh, however, it had occurred several times in the 1810s, and I believe a couple of times afterwards in the 1820s and 1830s. So, bearing this in mind, uh, can we justifiably say that the famine was not simply foreseen uh, on either side? And I think that does affect how both arguments uh, are constructed. Proposition to respond first this time. Oh, right. first, but ah. Yeah, okay, that's all. Right. So, yes, um, obviously, famine was an endemic problem in Ireland in the 1810s due to the famines that I very recently discovered. However, um, famine was also a problem across the rest of the globe at this time. And I think what you have is this famine actually being titled the Great Famine due to the sheer magnitude and loss of life. And I addressed this earlier in my speech that if this had been a few thousand people or if this had even been 10,000 people, I could have very readily, I believe, this was a case of mismanagement and laissez-faire. So however, were just dummy ones then, were they? Shh. However, in the case of this one, you're talking about a magnitude and the loss of life reaching into the million and reaching into the million plus zone. And I think whenever that happens, you have to take into consideration that there should have been some sort of governmental action and there was a lack of inaction and a lack of care which led to a through negligence genocide occurring. And then opposition to respond. So I, I firstly like to to comment that as I said in my speech, um, the potato had only recently become the most dominant crop. Uh, before our, many of our Irish farm families, like you mentioned, 
they were failures of grain harvest because of bad weather. But the potato is more reliable than grain. It can grow in harsher terrain. It doesn't require the same weather. It requires a quarter of the land that grain does to produce the same amount of food. Um, but as I argued in my speech, the, the blight of 1845, 46 and 47 was unprecedented. And you need to remember that the famine only got worse after the blight had ended because the policy of the government changed whenever Lord Russell came into power and implemented the more um, classical liberal solution to, to uh, the famine, which he thought would work. And with that, we wrap up the debate for this evening and move on to the final vote. So, this is the uh, members only binding vote, so get your membership cards out. If you don't have one on, you can be our paid up member. I'll know she can still stick your hand up anyway. But if you're not a paid up member, I will know as well. So, your vote will not be pointed. Right, so, the motion is this house believes the famine was the genocide. This is our vote on speaker ability. It's not on which side you more personally affiliate with, but which side you believe spoke better. So, if you would like to vote for the proposition, please raise your hand and say aye. 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 Twenty-eight. Right. And if you wish to vote in favour of the opposition, please raise your hands and say nay. <laughs> and if you would choose to vote abstain, please raise your hands and say no. <coughs> well. back over for one last time to our monarch of meritocracy. Mr. Matthew Bradley, will you please read us back on the vote? I'm going to do so with energy. Do you want to hear the vote? No! Yes! Please destroy my confidence for a moment. Do you want to hear the vote? Yes! Okay! There are 28 eyes, 3 nays, and 2 abstentions. questions then, or eventing us on discussing the debate or otherwise, there is the place to do it. And as always, if you want to speak at any of our debates, you can find on our church card, please talk to Mr. Matthew Bryson over there, because we're always looking for people to speak at things. Am I missing something? Are you giving me a look? Or? Um, I'm not sure I can sign up to the speak because we can put them on the box. Yeah, well, if you want to sign up and come play up and then arrive next week. When we are debating... A motion. It's this house regrets the gig economy, I believe it is. Next week is this house regrets the gig economy. Your Ubers, your Airbnbs, your such and suches, were they a good idea? Arrive next week for that. And I think, there for it is.